This week, we have Parsha's Bow, the most incredible event quite yet. An event, of course, that's going to be eclipsed by the revelation at Sinai in a couple of weeks. But we read about the Exodus. And, of course, it's been brewing for a couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, Moshe was nominated to go lead the Jewish people out. It started off with some stumbles, but last week we already had seven of the ten plagues. And in this week's parsha, we read about the final three plagues, the locust, the darkness, and of course the death of the firstborn and the actual Exodus. Now, our sages tell us that the Exodus is the blueprint for all redemption. In the future, we are anticipating the messianic redemption. And that will follow the model of the Exodus. As they just tell us, in the month of Nisan, we were redeemed. And in the month of Nisan, we will in the future be redeemed again. Why? Because the model of redemption of Exodus that happened once, well, that is the fixed protocol. That is how redemption actually works. And therefore, the future redemptions follow that pattern. Now, this is mentioned in the Talmud, as I mentioned, in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 11a. But it's also an explicit verse in Scripture, in the book of Micah, chapter 7. Like the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Meaning that the future miracles, the future Exoduses, or Exodai, as I like to call it, the future redemptions will be following the same pattern, the same miracles that happened at the Exodus from Egypt. In fact, the Zohar tells us explicitly that all the miracles and all the signs and all the wonders of the future redemption, of the future Exodus, will parallel the wonders and the miracles and the signs of the Exodus from Egypt. So we have our first amazing idea here. The Exodus from Egypt is not this one isolated, discrete, siloed off Exodus that happened once many thousands of years ago. Three, 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 if you want to be precise. This is the format of all future Exodi, of all future redemptions. And therefore, when we study the Exodus story, it is looking forward as much as it is looking back. This is the model. This is the prototype, the archetypal example of redemption. All future redemptions follow this model. Now, this idea also explains, you know, the belaboring of the Exodus story. The Almighty tells Moshe, Pharaoh won't release you easily. He is going to want to keep you. And I'm going to harden his heart to ensure that the exodus doesn't happen immediately. But that, of course, raises a question. Wouldn't that elongate the enslavement, the suffering? If Pharaoh wants to let the Jewish people go, well, we've got what we wanted. Now it's time to leave. Why did the Almighty kind of artificially elongate the enslavement in Egypt and delay the Exodus? Now we have a new answer. If the Exodus from Egypt is creating the prototype of all redemptions, 
we want to stuff into this as many different and varied miracles as possible. Because even if they're not needed for this particular access, after all, Pharaoh wants to let you leave after the fifth, after the sixth, God hardens his heart because we may need it for a future redemption. And because this exodus is creating the model, is creating the prototype for all the redemptions, we want to make sure that we have everything we need for any future redemption as well. So I want to show you something cool. This is a really cool way to kick off 2022. This there comes courtesy of the Benishchai. And he talks about the first verse of our Parsha. Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, God said to Moshe, come to Pharaoh, Bo el Paro, come to Pharaoh, because I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants in order that I place my signs bo in his midst. So what does it mean in his midst? So the Benishchai makes a stunning point based upon the hidden letter gematria system. So what's gematria? Gematria is an idea that we're familiar with, perhaps. That's the just the basic traditional gematria. And that is that there's a system, a numerical system, where each Hebrew letter of the 22 letters is assigned a corresponding number. So Aleph, which is the first of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, well, that's number one. And then Bet is number two and Gimel number three, etc. Until, you know, once you arrive at 10, then you jump from 10 to 20. So Yud is 10, but, but Chaf is, is 20. And then once you arrive at 100, Kuf is 100, but Reish is 200. And then Shin is 300. And finally, the last letter, Taf or Saf, is 400. And that way we can find out, you know, the numerical value of a letter, but also of a word or even a string of words. And then there's this whole body of literature and wisdom connecting different strings of words or different words, even though on the surface they don't seem to be the same. But if they share a gematria, well, maybe they share some sort of deeper connection. So that's the basic idea of gematria. But there's also the hidden letter gematria. This is a bit of a more exotic numerical concept. So with the basic gematria, you take a word and you find the corresponding number. So for example, my Hebrew name, Yaakov, is spelled with four letters, a Yud, an Ayin, a Kuf, and a Vet. And those four letters equal the number 182. The Yud is 10, the Ayin is 70, the Kuf is 100, and the second letter of the Bet and the Vet is 2. So that equals 182. In the past, we've mentioned that the Gematria, the word Torah, is 611, which is a beautiful number. It would be a great address to have as well. 611 equals Torah. So that's the basic idea of Gematria. But the hidden letter gematria, that employs not the letters of a given word, but the hidden letters of a given word. Now, what does it mean, hidden letters? And I'm going to explain the concept, and we'll get to what the message here is. So, let me explain what hidden letters refer to. Those refer to the letters used to spell the name of a letter, but are not the letter itself. Every letter is also a word. The word Aleph 
means a thousand, but it's also the word for the letter, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. But the way you spell the word Aleph is with an Aleph, and then two extra letters, two hidden letters, the Lamed and the Fe. And therefore, there is, again, a very exotic system of gematria that looks not at the letters themselves as they are displayed, but the hidden letters, the letters that are not displayed, the letters that are used to spell the words that are the words of the letter in a given word. A little complicated, but here's the idea. The Almighty tells Moshe, come to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart. His heart and the heart of his servants. Why? Leman shisi oso sayela bitirbo. In order that I will place these miracles bitirbo in his midst, inside of him. Says the Benishchai. God says to Moshe, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And Moshe says, Bet to God, wait a minute. Pharaoh already wants to release the Jews. Why is there need for more miracles? Says God, I want to do more miracles in order to place the miracles in Pharaoh's midst. Meaning, in Pharaoh's midst, the part of Pharaoh that's inside of Pharaoh that you don't see. Pharaoh's midst, Bitirbo, is hinting at the hidden letters of Pharaoh. Not the visible letters, but the ones in his midst. Okay. Well, how do you spell the word Pharaoh? Paro in Hebrew, that's a pay and a reish and an ayin and a hey. But the hidden letters, the word pay, which is the word of the first letter, the hidden letters a hey, and then the word reish, the hidden letters are a yud and a shin, and then an ayin, the hidden letters are a yud and a nun, and the hidden letter of the word hey is an aleph. And those total, the hidden letter to match the word paro, pharaoh, totals three 76, which equals the same gematria as the word Esav, says God, there's another conflict upcoming. There's another exodus that you're going to need miracles for. There's another redemption upcoming, the final showdown where Jacob and Esav finally duke it out. The final battle before Messiah is the final battle of the Jews, of the Israelites, of Jacob, with his brother Esav. And we need to beef up those miracles. And therefore, I'm going to do more miracles, big kirbo, in Pharaoh's midst, i.e., in the part of Pharaoh's name that's hidden, that equals Esav, that equals the final opponent, the final nemesis that we are going to have to face before Messiah. And because the Exodus from Egypt is the prototype for all future redemptions, I want to stick in more miracles that are needed, not for Pharaoh. Pharaoh already wants to let you go, but they are going to be needed for the future conflict with the midst, so to speak, of Pharaoh in the hidden letters of the Gematria Pharaoh's name, namely the 376, which equals Asav. We need miracles for that. And therefore, go to Pharaoh and let's do a few more miracles. What an interesting idea. What an interesting way to kick off 2022. The Exodus 
That's the model for all future redemptions. And therefore, we want to make sure that we have enough miracles in the Exodus itself, so that way when we need them for a future miracle or future redemption, they are already in place. Now, there's also the inverse of this idea. Not only is the Exodus the model for future redemptions, the Exodus itself, that's modeled after the redemptions of the forefathers. This is an idea we spoke about in the past, in Genesis, that the story of the individuals, the forefathers, that's a microcosm of the story of the nation. Everything that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob endured Those are all events that happen to them as individuals that are eventually going to happen to their descendants as a nation. And therefore, if you look at, for example, the story of Jacob and the house of Laban, it's almost a perfect parallel to the Jews in Egypt. You know, how does Jacob end up with Laban? Because he was running away from Israel and there was a mortal threat to his life. He was in mortal danger, so he escaped to Laban. How did the Jews end up in Egypt? There was a famine in Canaan, in the land of Israel, and they had to escape to Egypt. And they both started working for their new masters. As they just tell us that Pharaoh initially didn't compel the Jews to work for him, didn't coerce them to work for him. He tricked them, just like Laban tricked. Jacob. Jacob, working for Laban, proliferated. Many children were born to him. The Jewish people in Egypt proliferated. Many children were born to them. Jacob experienced God on his side and all kinds of miracles, just as the Jewish people witnessed miracles that happened to them. Both of them left with great wealth. Both of them were hunted down by their previous master seven days after Jacob escapes. Laban chased them down, and seven days later they have this showdown. After the Jewish people escaped, spoiler alert, Pharaoh chased them down, and seven days later they had a showdown. And the showdown in both cases were resolved by divine intervention. And in both cases there was a promise not to return. Jacob promised not to go back to Laban, and the Jewish people must never return to Egypt. And after Jacob leaves Laban, he has to encounter Esav after the Jewish people leave Egypt. We encounter Esav's grandson, Amalek. So we see that there's a, there's a pattern, there's a model for redemption that started off with just the family of Jacob and their encounter or their 20 year subjugation to Laban. And eventually they left and that exactly mirrors the Jewish people their enslavement in Egypt, and the Exodus. And seven days later, Pharaoh chases them down, and we know the story. Or maybe we don't. Spoiler alert. There's a format for redemption. When our people were coalesced into just the forefathers, the family, the founding family of the Jewish people, there was a redemption that followed this formula, this protocol, and now we're expanded into a nation, and that format, that protocol, still stands, or still stood. And in the future, when we will be redeemed again, may it happen speedily in our days, the same format will be followed. As such, I think this paints the whole Exodus in a different light. 
it's very important for us to study the Exodus, of course, to know what happened then, but also to know what to look forward to. And, very important, to know what we need to do to be ready. How must we prepare for the upcoming Exodus? And also, if this is the format, this is the protocol for redemption, both of Jacob and his family, of the Israelites, and of the future, you can safely assume that it's also the format of any individual in need of an exodus, in need of a salvation, in need of a redemption. So by studying what contributed towards the redemption in Egypt, we can deduce the principles, or at least some of the principles, of what it takes to achieve a personal, a communal, a national, or even a global exodus, a global redemption. And that, I think, gives salience to the whole story, and it should prompt us to examine the exodus really carefully, to look for clues to look for principles of how to achieve an exodus of any sort. So let's begin. What can we deduce from the story of the exodus about how exodai, plural exoduses, have to happen? The first idea is a scary idea. It's a surprising one. And I think one that will serve as a cautionary tale as well. In chapter 10 we read, Vayet Moshe es yado ala shemaim. Moshe stretched out his arm upon the heaven. And it was darkness, a thick darkness. In the entire land of Egypt, for three days, they did not see, a man did not see his fellow. And then they did not get up. And they weren't able to move around. They were immobilized for three days. And for all the children of Israel, for all the Israelites, they had light, they had R in their dwelling places. This is the ninth of the ten plagues, the plague of darkness. And Rashi tells us two very interesting ideas. Number one, Rashi tells us, there were two kinds of darknesses. Unlike all the other plagues, it was a plague, and whatever the plague was, blood or fraud or lice, etc. It was one plague. Rashi tells us each one of them lasted for a week, but it was a consistent plague. Here, Rashi tells us there were two kinds of darkness. For the first three days, it was a really intense darkness, and one that caused the Egyptians not to be able to see each other. There was three days of invisibility. And then there were three more days where there was an even more intense darkness and everything became immobile. If you were sitting, Rashi tells us, you weren't able to stand. And if you were standing, you were unable to sit. They were frozen in this deep, palpable, intense darkness that they were immobilized in place. So that's the first idea that Rashi tells us. Really interesting. And then Rashi tells us two reasons why God brought darkness upon the Egyptians. Why did God bring upon them choshech, darkness? 
Rashi gives us two answers. Number one, for amongst Israel in that generation, there were Rishaim, there were wicked ones who did not want to leave. And they died in the three days of darkness. And the reason why God had to make it dark and the Egyptians couldn't see what was happening was because during this time, these groups of Jews that were wicked didn't want to leave. They died, and the Egyptians shouldn't see the downfall of some of the Jews and say, oh look, we're not the only ones suffering, the Jews are suffering as well. And therefore, in order to facilitate the inconspicuous burial of the Jews who didn't want to leave, they might have made it dark, the Egyptians can't see what's going on, the Jews can't see, and they quietly and surreptitiously over three days bury the Jewish brethren, the sinful, the wicked, Rashi tells us, Jewish brethren who didn't want to leave. That's one reason why the Almighty brought about this plague of darkness. The ode, and there's a second reason, because when it was dark, the Jewish people were able to go snoop around in the homes of the Egyptians. And when it was time to leave, Moshe instructed the Jewish people, go request, go borrow from your neighbors, borrow their Rolexes, borrow their jewelry and their gold and their precious stones. You go to your Egyptian neighbor and you say, well, can I borrow your gold watch? Can I borrow your gold earrings, your necklace? The Egyptian says, well, sorry, you know, the economy stuff, I had to sell it all. And you say, well, are you sure? I think in that drawer, in that closet, over there hiding, over there in your in your safe, I think I saw a little bit of gold, a little bit of jewelry. And the Egyptian will not be able to deny it, because it's true. And they will be compelled to lend out their gold to the Jews who are about to flee the country. And that's why they might make it dark and immobilize the Egyptians. And the Moral tells us, interestingly, that there were two kinds of darknesses, and there were two reasons for this darkness, and there was one kind of darkness for every one of the reasons. When the Jews were burying the resistant Jews, Jews didn't want to leave, well, then all you needed was darkness. But when the Jews were inspecting the Egyptian treasures, well, then you needed to immobilize the Egyptians, and that's why you had two kinds of darknesses, to accomplish the two goals of the darkness. But here's the thing I want to focus on. It's an amazing thing Rashi tells us. The Jews were marginalized in Egypt. They were treated as second-class citizens. They were enslaved. They were tormented. They were abused. They were persecuted. They were murdered. Nevertheless, there was some portion of them that did not want to leave. That to complicate and compound the matter, Rashi over here in chapter 10 of Exodus doesn't tell us how many people we're talking about. But in Etri's Parsha, in the second verse of the Parsha, Rashi gives us some statistics, and the numbers are staggering. The verse says, Vachamushim The Jewish people ascended from the land of Egypt, Chamushim. What does Chamushim mean? Rashi tells us, number one, Chamushim means armed. The Jewish people were armed. Davar Acher, alternatively, Chamushim is from the root of the 
word for five, chamisha is five, chamushim, that's indicating that one-fifth of the Jews left. Of all the Jews, one-fifth left, 20% left. Ve'arbachalakim, but four out of five, mesu they died, b'shloshim in three days of darkness. How many people didn't want to leave? Rashi tells us that the number amounted to 80%. There was an 80% attrition rate during the Exodus. It's a frightening thing. Four out of five Israelites died before the Exodus. Now, here's something interesting. Listen to this. A brand new idea for 2022. Rashi tells us that only 20% of the Jewish people left Egypt, the remaining 80%, well, they didn't make the cut. And we've said, we've established, that the Exodus, well, that's that's the model for redemption. And it already goes back to the forefathers. The story of Jacob leaving Laban, that's the story of the first Exodus. And that was modeled by the national exodus from Egypt. And that's the model for the future exodus in the times of Messiah. So we could perhaps say that one of the characteristics of the exodus was that 80% didn't make it and only 20% made it out. Perhaps we can call this the 80-20 rule. There was a winnowing effect of all the candidates, 20% emerged. So here's the interesting idea. This is not the first instance of the 80-20 rule. Remember we said that the forefathers, they were the forerunners to what happened to the nation. Jacob's exodus from Laban is the microcosm of the national exodus from Egypt. I think that the 80-20 rule existed by the forefathers as well. Here's what we're going to suggest. How many sons and grandsons did Abraham have? This, by the way, is a great trivia. You ask someone who is well-versed, they're a scholar, they know things. Say, how many, how many sons did Abraham have? Most people will say, well, Abraham had Ishmael, and then, of course, then Isaac was born. But the truth is, the Torah tells us that after Sarah died, this is chapter 25 of Genesis, Abraham married a woman whose name was Keturah. And we know Keturah, she's actually none other than Hagar. But the verse says in 25.2 that Abraham bore six more sons with Keturah. Zimran, Yachan, Madan, Midian, Yishbak, and Shuach. So Abraham actually had eight sons. But only Isaac was his heir. The verse even says, Yitzchak, he's the one. Isaac is the one who's going to be your continuity. The rest of them, well, you just send them away, give them gifts, and send them to the east. So if we count Abraham's sons, we have eight sons, but of that, only one emerges. So after his eight sons, the lineage of Abraham follows just the path, just the line of Isaac. And Isaac, of course, bore two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
So if you look at Abraham's sons and grandsons, Abram has 10 sons and grandsons. And out of that, how many of them are righteous? How many of them are going to follow the Abrahamic path? Two or 20%, Isaac and Jacob. So perhaps we can suggest this 80-20 rule of all the candidates, so to speak, of who's going to continue what Abraham started. You start with 10 people, and when it's all said and done, only two remain. Abraham, so to speak, establishes this pattern that only 20% of his descendants will truly harbor that Abrahamic gene. And that theme repeats itself on a national scale when only 20% leave Egypt, while the other 80% don't really have that Abrahamic gene. They want to stay behind. They don't have that gene of Lechelcha, let's just leave, let's trust God, let's go to Israel. And they die and they are buried during the three days of darkness. So here's the cautionary tale. The Egyptian redemption is the model for all redemptions. We're told that there are three national revelations. One, that is the Abrahamic revelation. The idea of revealing just the existence of God. And one, the Mosaic Revelation, the Exodus, the revelation at Sinai, and one of Messiah. And we find something really interesting. Of the first two revelations, 80% didn't make it out. 80% of Abraham's sons and grandsons were not good candidates at the first revelation, and 80% of the Jews could not leave Egypt at the second revelation. Now, the literature hints that when Messiah comes, again, there will be this winnowing effect and 80% will not make the cut. This is the sobering, scary thought, the cautionary tale. If this pattern holds, 80% of our brethren will unfortunately not be privy to the third and final redemption. But of course, that is not yet set in stone. And I think just knowing this idea, it demands of all of us to do whatever we can to bring them on board and get them with the program before the arrival of Messiah. 80% of the Jews in Egypt did not want to leave. They suffered from stagnation, from spiritual paralysis. They were fixed in place. No matter how bad things were in Egypt, they ain't leaving. How many Jews today in America, in Europe, subjects of Her Majesty the Queen? And I'm talking, of course, about our friends in Canada. How many Jews identify as Jews proudly and commit themselves to be part of this nation come what may? Unless something drastic changes, those people will be left behind when Messiah comes. It's a frightening idea. But, as I mentioned, the literature hints at it, and it makes tons of sense. This is part of the Exodus process. If you're not quite with the program, up to speed, you will be left behind. 
And perhaps this gives us the first prerequisite of what it takes to gain an exodus. Number one, you have to want it. You have to be willing to change. You have to be willing to abandon the only home and the only lifestyle that you know. You have to be willing to walk away from your comfort. And by the way, your current situation is likely quite comfortable, regardless of how objectively miserable it actually is. It's very hard to leave the devil you know. We get vulnerable when we are forced to leave what we know. But it is a prerequisite for redemption. If you want exodus, you have to be comfortable or you have to be willing to absorb the vulnerability brought on by change. 80% of the Jews in Egypt didn't make the cut. But there's also a heartening point here. The 80-20 rule is not a fait accompli. In Jacob's Exodus from Laban, everyone, everything got out. So it's still to be determined if the pending redemption will look like Jacob's Exodus from Laban, where 100% of the Jews make it out, or will it look like the nation's Exodus from Egypt, the children that emerged from Abraham, and only 20% actually endure. There's another point here to this. We could ask the following question. Why were the ones who were killed by the darkness, why were they killed then? Maybe you could have had the first of the plagues would be darkness, and they would all die right away. Or maybe even before the plagues. If you have to get rid of the people who don't want to join, you know, they're the, the malcontents, Get rid of them earlier. So I, I think the answer is like this. If you had darkness for the first plague, it would have been a lot more than 80%. Remember, when Moshe first started to save the people in Parshas Shmos, it flopped terribly. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let the Jewish people go, and I'm going to make their situation even worse. The work was intensified. And then Moshe is again commissioned by God to go speak to the Jewish people. And they were working so intensely, no one even heard Moshe due to shortness of breath and harsh labor. If there was darkness then, you bet that more than 80% of people wouldn't have made the cut. But the plagues themselves, the first eight plagues, well, they, they served as an inspiration for the Jews. Over the course of those months, the Jews were relieved of their work and they could witness all these amazing plagues. And even though they've been there for centuries, by seeing these miracles and seeing how the Almighty is differentiating between the Jewish people and their Egyptian overlords, the Jewish people began to sever their allegiances with Egypt. And as the miracles progressed, and as the plagues progressed, the Jews, the 20%, deepened their Jewish identity and lit a fire in their belly. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Let's go back to the land of Israel. I don't want to think about it. It's terrifying. Who cares? 
I'm a descendant of Amazon and Jacob. We could do this. Let's go. After eight plagues, 20% of the nation was fired up and ready to go. But 80% were still irreparably wedded to Egypt and they died in the plague of darkness. But that number would have been even larger if it was done earlier. So this raises the opposite question. Why don't you wait until the plague of the firstborn, the most amazing of the ten plagues? Maybe if that recalcitrant, intransigent, resistant 80%, if they would have witnessed the death of the firstborn, maybe they would have been convinced. They would have repented. Maybe you couldn't get all 80%, but maybe you get another 10%, another 5%, another 50%. Maybe they would have wanted to join. After all, the plague of the firstborn was the greatest one of them all. You would imagine there was at least a cohort who weren't convinced and died during the darkness, but had they been around to witness the death of the firstborn, they would have been convinced. So our first question was, why don't we start off with the plague of darkness and get rid of everyone? Well, the answer to that is, that would have included a lot more than 80% because the function of the plagues was to help the Jewish people dislodge themselves from Egypt. Now we're asking the opposite question. Wait until it's all said and done, do all the miracles, and then bring about the plague of darkness. And then separate whoever remains, likely more than 20%, from those that are going to stay behind. So perhaps we can't suggest an answer. Maybe this shows us another prerequisite of having an exodus. Maybe to have this transformation, you have to have some degree of a leap of faith. How much convincing do you need to follow Moshe into the desert, into the unknown? How sure do you have to be? Is 99% enough? What about 99.999999%? Is that enough? Perhaps the idea here is that you don't get 100% certainty before redemption. This is an idea that, of course, is broadly applicable. If you want to you do a big startup, you want to make a lot of money, you have to have an idea that's both correct but also non-consensus. If you wait until it becomes consensus, well, you've lost all the ability to capitalize on it. I once heard this heuristic, that to make good decisions, you have to know the right time to do it. Don't wait till you have 100% certainty. 70% certainty, that's the right time. That's the sweet spot. You have enough conviction, enough evidence, enough certainty, but you don't wait for 100% certainty. Don't hold out till there's 100% certainty. You're not afforded that luxury. Maybe that's how it works with the Exodus as well. You don't get to see the death of the firstborn. You get to see eight nature-defined miracles. But even then, once you see that, it should be enough, even though you don't have 100% certainty. You have to take a leap to some degree. Now, remember that this was already after Pharaoh had capitulated. Pharaoh was only holding out because God had hardened his heart. 
So if it's enough to convince Pharaoh, it should be enough to convince you. And if it's not, well, then that's on you. You don't get the luxury of waiting until you have 100% certainty. And I think if you study the story of the Exodus, it's all about priming the Jews, preparing the Jews for the Exodus and what exactly they need to do to accomplish that. They're told to circumcise. They're told to take their deities to slaughter them and then to roast them so everyone could smell and to smear the blood of their deities on their doorposts. Remember, the Jews in Egypt, they were idolaters like the Egyptians. The Egyptians were told, worshipped lambs. Take the pastoral lamb, take the pastoral sheep and slaughter it. Repudiate your previous self. Slaughter it. And I don't want you cooking it. I want to barbecue so everyone in the entire neighborhood can know that you have made a decision. You've chosen your allegiance. You've taken your previous deity and slayed it and killed it. And taken that blood and smear it, slather it all over your doorposts. And then you follow Moshe into the desert without provisions. What are we going to drink? Is that a good question before a trip into the desert? What are we going to eat? The Jewish people are given credit by the fact that they trusted God. Remember, this is the blueprint. This is how Exodi work. You want to get out of your miserable situation? You want a personal exodus? You want to get out of your miserable national situation? You want a national exodus? You have to follow this protocol. An exodus from a difficult or a torturous circumstance is only possible if you really, really want it. Do you really want it? Or do you want to stay where you are? Do you want to stay behind? Do you want to stay in Egypt? You have to really want it. And you have to be willing to endure the tough decision to walk away from your status quo. It's easier said than done. You have to make a leap of faith. By the time the uncertainty is completely removed, it's too late. You have to be willing to expose yourself to some degree of danger, circumcision, slaughtering your Egyptian deities, social marginalization, uncertainty, entering into the terrifying unknown. And for 80%, it was too much to ask for. But that is what it takes to have an exodus. That's what it took in Egypt, and that is what it will take in the future. And that is what's needed for a personal exodus. And we have to remember, we are the survivors of multiple winnowings. We are part of the 20% of Abraham's children who followed his path. We are part of the 20% who left Egypt. And we actually buried our brethren there. We are part of the around 20% who were not sent away with the 10 lost tribes. We're the survivors of multiple winnows. We're the tenacious ones. We come from a long line of those who were willing to be saved and were willing to risk the dangers. May we all merit to experience redemption, both as individuals 
in our own personal Echadai, and in the coming redemption, may we witness it speedily in our days. And now it's time for this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready? Let us begin the first exquisite insight of 2022. This idea, I must say, was actually featured in last year's newsletter for Parsha's Bow. So if it sounds a little familiar, that's the reason why. And it's also a reminder, if you have yet to subscribe to the newsletter, you could do so by clicking the link in the description for the newsletter. In our Parsha, we read about the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people, and that is to establish a calendar. This month shall be for you the first of the months, the first commandment that our nation received as a nation. Of course, we have the commandments given to individuals, Abraham to circumcise, Jacob to withhold from eating the sciatic nerve, but the first one given to us as a nation is to establish a calendar. Now, for most of us, a calendar just means like it's an app on your phone. If you're old school, it's a physical map hanging on your bulletin board. But what does it mean to establish a calendar? So it's a little bit more complicated than what you might think. Because our calendar is the only calendar of its type. Because it is a hybrid of lunar months. Our monthly cycle follows the moon. But solar years. A solar year is around 365 and a quarter days. That's why every four years you have a February 29th. But the lunar month is around 29 and a half days long. And that's why every couple of years, including, by the way, this year, 5782, we have an extra month of Adar to balance the solar year and the lunar month. So the commandment to maintain the calendar is really twofold. Because the lunar month is 29 and a half days, we must decide, the court must decide, which day is the beginning of the next month. Is the previous month going to skew longer? And day 30 is the final day of the previous month, making day 31 the first day of the following month. Or will the previous month end after 29 days? Because again, it's 29 and a half days long. So sometimes it'll go a little earlier, 29 days, and sometimes it'll go longer, 30 days. And that is the decision the court has to make every month. The second aspect of maintaining a calendar is to harmonize the solar year with the lunar month by intercalating months. Meaning that, you know, if you just multiply the 29 and a half day month by 12, you end up with a 354 day calendar. And if we don't touch it, each year would see the same date fall out 11 days earlier in the seasonal cycle. So Passover will start off in the spring and then it'll move earlier 11 days every year till it's in the winter and then it's in the fall, then it's the summer without rebalancing for every 33 solar years you would have 34 Passovers and 34 Yom Kippers and 34 Sukkots, etc. The first mitzvah of the Torah given to us as a nation is to adjust for this and make an extra Adar like we have this year. But here's the question. The Jewish people, 
as a nation, are about to get their first mitzvah. Which mitzvah is going to be the first mitzvah given to us as a nation? If you would conduct a poll of a hundred Jews and say, well, which mitzvah is the most important one? Which is the mitzvah that should personify all the mitzvahs? Should be the first one given to the Jewish people? You would get a lot of different answers. I imagine that only a small percentage would say that organizing calendars is the most important one. Yet, when the Torah gives us the mitzvahs, when God gave Moshe the mitzvah in Egypt, the very first one that he gave us was to make a calendar. Why is the calendar the first one given to our nation, and how does it embody all the mitzvahs? So here is an idea that was speculated in last year's newsletter to Parsha's bow. Determining a new moon requires a fair amount of astronomic calculation. The Talmud tells us that a new moon happens every 29 and a half days, but then it tells us it's more than just a half day. It's not as neat as that, 29.5 days. It says it's no less than 793 portions of an hour, more than 29 and a half days. Now, what that means is, is that in the Torah's hourly system, it's not divided up into 60 minutes, but into 1,080 chalakim, or portions of an hour, meaning that each minute is 18 chalakim long. And thus, the Talmud tells us that a lunar month, a lunar moon, happens every 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and a little bit more than 3.3 seconds. Now, what's amazing about this is that with the most advanced scientific and astronomical tools and technology at our disposal today, that precise number, one feature of the Talmud written about 2,000 years ago, that precise number holds up true. All the other ancient calendars were notoriously imprecise. Yet the calendar system that we have been using for millennia is accurate with atomic precision. And the reason why it is so, it's not because we're more intelligent per se than the rest of the world, is because we got it from God. God created the sun and the moon and the stars and the entire universe and everything inside of it. And therefore, the creator of heaven and earth is the same entity who's the giver of the Torah. And therefore, he says, I created this. I created the moon and I know exactly how often there is a new lunar moon. It should come as no shock when the Torah, handiwork of God, and the world, the universe, the science, if you will, also, the handiwork of God should coincide. Of course they should. So perhaps this is the reason why this mitzvah was chosen to be the first one given to us as a nation. It's to reinforce this idea that mitzvahs in general, they're not just you know arbitrarily chosen. There is a certain almost atomic precision in the mitzvahs. And just as Maintaining the calendar relies on astronomic precision. 
the rest of the Torah is also perfectly calibrated, even the things that made no sense to us. And the skeptic may say, well, is that so important? Is that so indispensable? Yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll do that. It makes sense to me. But what about uh, don't mix wool linen? Don't turn your phone on on Shabbos. Don't drive a car on Shabbos. Don't mix milk and meat together. Really? Is that so important? Torah starts off and gives us the first mitzvah, a mitzvah that we can verify is 100% spot on accurate. That is a good way to start off the mitzvos in general to remind ourselves that they are just not some sort of collection of random commandments. There is atomic precision in all of them. What an amazing idea. The first mitzvah, the very first one we're given as a nation is the one that guarantees us that all the mitzvahs that we have are not just some sort of random assortment. Oh, they might have just decided this as if it was just some sort of arbitrary decision. They might have wants to make us even more miserable. All these things we can't do. No, it's all precise. It's all accurate. It's all targeted. It's all specific. It's all with razor precision. Spot on. The perfect recipe. The perfect manual to maximize living. Have an amazing rest of your day. Have an incredible and wonderful rest of your week. And a splendid, spectacular, fantastic, happy, joyous, healthy, tranquil, and serene Shabbos upcoming. And from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, I'm Yaakov Wolby. This is the Parsha Podcast. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And with the help of the Almighty, we will talk again next week.